in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, the police chief is promising change. Protesters gathered demanding racial equality. But they were confronted by rows of police and soldiers. Tens of thousands of people took part in further anti-racism protests across Britain today. For centuries, he took pride of place in Bristol, celebrated as a merchant, politician and philanthropist. Now reviled for his part in the slave trade. Hello and welcome back to Bell Again Bye. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So as Emma and I said in our last episode of Barely Getting By, we're taking a bit of a break this week from our investigation of the long 1990s to concentrate on the events of the past week. Like a lot of you, we've been captivated by the Black Lives Matters protests that burst into life in the US last week and are now rapidly spreading around the globe, including to here in Australia. Yeah, so we, we spoke a bit about living through history and the sense of living through history um, during a global pandemic, I think in our first episode in this series. So we wanted to return briefly to that because I think that sense has only gotten stronger. And that, that's especially because I think that that sense of history is, is really, um, I suppose, brought to light because some of the Black Lives Matter protest, um, the movement that is, is kind of sweeping the globe, as Chloe just said, has centred on statues and monuments and their place in history. So we wanted to return to that discussion about the role of statues, because I know we've spoken about that before. And and we spoke about that in a specific episode, one that I think that we're really proud of, which was about fascism. We, d- we did a two-part on fascism in season one. And, and because, you know, since then, we've watched so many of the things that we talked about in that episode get worse, we wanted to return to that issue. And, and the issue of, of statues um, and monuments and their place in history has, has been really significant in Britain in particular this week um, with the tearing down, I think, in a, a really iconic tearing down of a statue of a guy called Colston in Bristol and then the so-called defacing of a monument to Winston Churchill, which, which was apparently significant enough to warrant a comment by our own government. Um, now, of course, we're lucky enough to have an, an expert in British history, culture and politics here in, in Chloe. So I thought I'd start by, by asking Chloe what, you know, what's with the statues in the UK? Why is this so important? Um, I think the first thing to mention here is that this kind of more formal movement to tear down statues or to remove statues that venerate colonialists and slave traders didn't start in the UK. The Roads Must Fall campaign started in Cape Town in South Africa in 2015 as a protest uh, against a statue of Cecil Rhodes that is at Cape Town University. Um, Cecil Rhodes is an incredibly important figure in British imperial history. He's someone into whom we can kind of collapse everything that was wrong with the British Empire. He was a diamond trader, a politician, an imperialist. He was the Prime Minister of the Cape Colony and he's the person for whom Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, was named. He's the sort of person who we we can see how politics, capital and empire were all tied up with racism and white, white supremacy. So it's a hugely symbolic and hugely very big political action to demand that his features and his statues be removed from all sorts of places across the across the former British Empire. And so that's a protest that moved to England where there's a Rhodes statue at Oriel College in Oxford. This is particularly significant in symbolic terms because Oxford is also the host of Rhodes Scholarships, which I think a lot of people may be familiar with because basically all of our Prime Ministers have been Rhodes Scholars. Yeah, that's right. So, so Bob Hawke was a Rhodes Scholar. I think even Tony Abbott was a Rhodes Scholar. It's kind yeah. of a, a rite of, of passage for, for white Australian men. Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, I, mean, I mean, not just white Australian men, and certainly there have been some serious debates about, about people of colour and black people who have been recipients of Rhodes Scholarships and how they fit into this protest movement and these, you know, these increasingly radical demands that we kind of displace Cecil Rhodes from his you know, vaunted position in history. But am I, am I right in thinking that the Statue of Rhodes is still standing at Oxford? Yes. Well, it is right now. There was a huge protest in Oxford a couple of nights ago. So by the time this goes out, I mean, we, we, I know, you never know. Maybe it will, maybe Rhodes will have finally fallen. 
Um, so he might he might meet the same fate as as Edward Colston in yes. Bristol. Yes. So in Bristol, there has been a campaign to remove the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston for several years. So this was not a sudden action. It was not. It was. It didn't come out of nowhere. And that's something that has been very deliberately frustrated by Colston, by Colston supporters, which it seems extraordinary to, to you know to even think that there are supporters of Colston. But yeah, so this is something that has been through legitimate processes for many years now, but with no success. So as soon as you put it into that context, I think you can understand why in a wave of popular anger, people would just take it upon themselves to pull down this statue and tip it into the river, which was pretty extraordinary. It was. The the footage of it is amazing. And and just to be clear, Colston is a particularly egregious example of white supremacy. Am I right in saying that? Uh, well, amongst the tens of thousands of slaves who he was responsible for shipping across the Atlantic, 19,000 of them that we know of died, died, well, fell overboard and died on the, in the middle passage. Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And I think um, I've got to say one of the things that has really astonished me in the public debate that's emerged is that among people who are critical of the movement to, to to destroy these statues, there seems to be almost this kind of race to the bottom to see who was the worst imperialist. Like, for instance, I've seen people saying, oh, Leopold II in Belgium, he was the worst. He was way worse than Colston. Remove his statue, but don't worry about Colston. As, as far as I'm concerned, a slave trader is a slave trader. Like, bring them all down. Yeah, I think, like, ranking these people who are all revolting on a scale is not necessarily that constructive and kind of falls into those debates about you know whether it's legitimate or not to to erase so-called erase history but I'm sort of interested in that question Chloe of, of legitimacy because you said as you said you know these these protests have for a long time been going through so-called legitimate processes without success yes no that's exactly right so legitimate processes and I'm hesitant to call them democratic processes because I think this implies that the action that was taken was not democratic um, which kind of opens up a very a very big debate that we probably don't have time to go into but yeah legitimate processes have been exhausted so what protesters have turned to is a time-honored tactic of of protest and of of social change which is non-violent direct action Throwing the statue in the river didn't hurt anyone. It achieved what it wanted. And it's also showing signs that it's actually achieving far more than, you know, that that individual gesture. Because now we're seeing halls being renamed all over the United Kingdom. We're seeing other statues being taken down. A campaign, you know, that has gone through gone through the legitimate processes for years now is finally getting action because people took that action into their own hands. Okay, so so you, uh, this is a kind of silly question because I probably know the answer, but you don't think there's anything in this this idea that tearing down statue, statues is erasing history? Well, no, no, not at all. I think that, I think that Britain, if anything, has used statues and has used, has used memorialisations of the of empire that you know kind of hide the nasty side of things, as as a way of erasing and suppressing history. What I hope is that this will prompt a reckoning with Britain's imperial past that is very, very long overdue. I mean, as a really simple and slightly glib illustration of this, I I can't tell you the number of times when I've been in the UK and English people have said to me, oh, Australia's really racist, which is, you know, obviously true. And I've had to point out, you were the colonisers. And they're quite, you know, they seem to be quite, ad- quite ignorant of that or quite ready to, to ignore that aspect of their history. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really obvious as well when you see a lot of the, um, I guess, the kind of rebuttals to the idea of erasing history when it, that focus on Britain's role in abolishing the slave trade, um, which, which is certainly a thing that happened. But of course, Britain is also the instigator of the slave trade. And that's the thing that gets glossed over in these discussions. Yeah, and another thing which I found interesting is that a lot of people in rebutting this argument about erasing history by deposing these statues, they pointed to the example of Germany, where, as people will point out, there are no statues of Hitler and the Nazis. 
There's no argument for their preservation. And yet people do know about Hitler. They do know about the Nazi regime and they do know about the Holocaust. Um, so, and people also point to Germany quite often as an example of the successful critical engagement with a dark and inhumane past. And I think that's probably a, wor- a point that's kind of worth extending on because I think that it can actually add something to the current debate about statues and memorialization. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good point because one of the main arguments for, for the detractors of, of the movement to take down these statues is that it erases history and, you know, they help us remember what happened. But, of course, you know, there's the very strong argument that they don't do that. They they valorise the people that they're depicting, you know. They, they depict them as heroes and um, people sh- who should be remembered for their good deeds. And so this idea of, you know... Um, the preservation of, of memory in Germany being equivalent, equivalent, I think, is, is you know, quite problematic, I suppose. Um, so I guess I'll just ask you, you know, why, why aren't there equivalent statues in Germany? Why aren't there statues of Hitler? Well, look, at the risk of sounding extremely glib, one reason is that a lot of German cities were destroyed in the Second World War. So... That kind of did. That kind of did in you know the uh, the very heavy going and quite uh, I suppose dramatic um, statuary of the Nazi of the Nazi regime. Um, but yes, but after the Second World War, there were also political choices that were made about how to memorialize and how to remember Nazism. Um, one really striking example of that is Hitler's bunker. So Hitler's bunker is in what was East Berlin, and after the war. There was a car park and I think apartments that were built on top of the site. There was no, there was there is there was nothing for many many decades, well after and well after the fall of the Berlin Wall, to even indicate what sort of lay beneath the ground there. And this is of course the place where Hitler died at the end of the Second World War. In two thousand and six, before the FIFA World Cup in Germany, there was a very discreet plaque placed there, which gives some you know really basic a really basic dry description of the site. And what happened there. And this was, you know, this was sort of a concession to the fact that people had for, you know, for decades, they hadn't wanted that place to be able to be turned into any sort of shrine to Hitler, but also recognising that, yes, there is legitimate historical interest in the site. But the other side of that, so, you know, there's that sort of cautious memorialisation that recognises the past without, you know, I suppose, giving opportunity to misread it. Um... But on the other side of that, there was also repression of the Nazi Nazi past. So denazification after the Second World War, that was the effort by the Western powers to eradicate Nazism from German politics, from the state and from society. But that was only ever a really partial process because Germany in the, you know, in the years after the Second World War, and we've spoken about this before in the podcast, it was too important for the West economically, politically and militarily, especially as the Cold War set in, to make it, you know, from the Allies' perspective, practicable to remove former Nazis from all positions of power in Germany. Okay, so I, I assume then that if all, na- if all Nazis haven't been removed from positions of power, then that's not the end of it. No, no, not at all. And this is where I get to say my favourite German word. My German is terrible, so I'll probably mangle it. But Germany later went through this process, which is called Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which translated means working through the past or mastering the past and so one part of that involved memorializing victims rather than perpetrators which I think is quite could be quite a direct lesson for Britain today you know actually recognizing who needs to be remembered and retaining and contextualizing the things that Nazism did that shouldn't be forgotten so that's for example preserving and creating memorials out of the sites of former concentration camps but, you know, so this is, this is very much concentrated on kind of the legitimate processes that we talked about in, at the beginning of this episode. But I think it's also really important to remember that there were also, for want of a better word, illegitimate processes that went through too. And I'm talking about the sorts of nonviolent direct action that has kind of a parallel in the, removal, in the, you know, the forced removal of statues in the past week. So... In, this, in pretty much really around the, in the 1960s, for young people, this kind of deliberate forgetting of the Nazi past led to some very painful confrontations with their parents' complicity or their active participation in the Nazi regime. So German 68ers, 68, 1968 was a year of 
really, you know, I mean, world revolution, like it was quite a dramatic year across, across Western Europe and the USA in particular. And that was really young boomers who were coming to political consciousness and really rebelling against the strictures of the society they'd grown up, up in. In Germany in particular, the, these young people, they understood that denazification had actually, because it was an incomplete process, it had left former Nazis in positions of power. And this meant to them that they had to use, you know, illegitimate and even extra legal processes and protests to force these confrontations with the Nazi past. And, you know, and that was, that was, in some cases that was violent. Some of these people ended up as terrorists, but in its most successful forms, this actually did, you know, this forced Germany to finally reckon with that past. And that's a very strong reason why Germany is, you know, fairly widely esteemed across the world for how it has actually managed, you know, what was a really dark episode, both for that country and for the world. Okay. So is part of that, part of the difference then between Germany and the UK, that nearness, like the fact that the, in, you know, in 68, this is people's parents who were active participants in the Nazi regime is part of the, the difference in Britain, the sort of, I, I guess, the distance between white Britons living now and that imperial legacy? Really good question. Let me think it through. Sorry. <laughs> um, absolutely, yes. But I think in the UK, it's interesting because imperial history in the UK has gone through many phases and it's been remembered in many different ways. And I think really what has shaped the current sort of hegemonic, you know, can I use the word hegemonic in this podcast, Em? Let's say dominant, Um, the the dominant understanding of empire and the one that we see kind of transacted through political rhetoric around Brexit, that's one that very much stems from the end of empire after the Second World War and perceptions of Britain's declining world world role. So, yes, I think distance plays a part, but this is something that has been continually remade and remade politically. Okay, and I mean, I think we're sort of living through that at one of those processes again now. What what do you think the legacy is of that imperialist history? Well, I think if you explain this legacy, then you do then you can understand even better why people are going to go around the state and are going to go around official processes in order to remove statues and to force a reckoning with empire and a reckoning with racial injustice in the UK because the British state itself itself still has an imperialist legacy. Um, one extraordinary thing that I don't think is is well known enough is that British taxpayers only paid off the loan that the government took out for reparations to slaveholders in 2015. So, yeah, so, you know, 200 years, 200 odd years after the abolition of the slave trade. Yeah. And just, just to maybe to explain that, what, what that means is when, when the slave trade was abolished, British government actually paid out slaveholders, you know, it, it compensated them for their loss of income from, from losing their control over enslaved people. So this wasn't a kind of um, a moral end, I suppose, to slavery. It was recognising the economic suffering, I suppose, of slaveholders. And, you know, as Chloe just said, that loan was so huge, it's only, it's only been paid off five years yeah. ago. And former sla- and former slaves, even though they were freed, they were forced to repay their debt to their to their former masters through several years of labour after the abolition of slavery. So it wasn't it wasn't a straightforward process of liberating slaves by any means. Um, we can see other examples of how how the British state still in, in, still kind of endorses imperial nostalgia or represses imperial memory in the way that, you know, the official school curriculum in the UK, it kind of marginalises, you know, marginalises imperial history. I think a lot of people will talk about how, you know, if they, if they went to high school in the UK, they know about you know, more about Hitler than they do about the British Empire. And, of course, as we've seen in the case of Bristol, it, it really does frustrate attempts to engage with this past, with this reckoning, in good faith. So... Of course people are going to protest. Of course they should protest. And what we're seeing now is that this may well work and it may well go beyond the symbolic. Like this is this is serious business. And I'm you know, and I'm, you know, for all that this is a horrible time, I also think that there are 
there are real glimmers of optimism for that reckoning that, as I've said before in this earlier in this podcast, is is long overdue. Yeah, and and look for you know for what it's worth, I think a very we're seeing a very similar thing potentially play out in the United States, where we've you know of course also seen huge protests sweeping the country, and I think real at least early on some some real outcomes. You know, we've seen charges for, for being laid for the murderer of George Floyd, for the police officers who murdered him. Um, we're seeing the case of Breonna Taylor, I think, um, not being reopened yet, but there being immense pressure on the police force in Kentucky to do that. Um, we're seeing things like the dis- potential dismantling of the police force in Minneapolis. And I think, you know, I, I, a little bit like in the UK, a kind of broader tone shift where these protests are are actually you know for the first time I think really prompting white people especially to rethink what they thought they had what they thought they knew about racism and particularly about structural racism in the United States. Yeah so I wanted to pick up on something that we spoke about in our episode about fascism which was nine months ago we talked about this issue of confederate statues um could you give me a little bit of a recap of what that debate's about and how that's mo- how that's moved on in the current protests protests? Yeah, sure. So, so this the statues debate, of course, um, is is really significant in the United States, much much as it has been in Britain. And again, like in Britain, this this movement has a long history. Like this isn't something that has just spontaneously emerged in the last couple of weeks. So, a lot of protest, I think, has focused symbolically on confederate statues in particular so these aren't statues to imperialists these are statues to mostly uh generals in the confederate army um so we're talking of course about the u.s civil war so just briefly to to recap because you know for me especially the civil war is kind of outside of my area of expertise and i think it's worth revisiting the united states descended into civil war in 1861. So historically speaking, you know, it, not that long ago, that war lasted for four years and and killed. Estimates vary quite wi- um, widely, but we think that around 750,000 people were killed in this war. So there's a huge proportion of the population. Now, a lot of the debate, debate again, I'm using air quotes, um, much like the debate about Britain and slavery is about what the war was about. So this war is, of course, the United States of America under President Abraham Lincoln fighting the Confederate States of America or the Confederacies. So the Confederacy is a group of mostly southern states that seceded from the United States um, because of slavery. So President Lincoln, um, the United States are trying to abolish slavery and those Confederate states are furious about that because they want to continue slavery and they secede because of that. The war lasts for about four years and until Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered in 1865. Okay, so, so after the end of the war, very quickly we see attempts emerge to erase the history of the war, to, to erase what the war was actually about, which is undoubtedly slavery. So even as Robert E. Lee is surrendering, um, there are efforts to make this cause about states' rights. So it's not about slavery. It's not about the right of white people to enslave back black people. It's about the right of states within the union to do what they please, to enact their own laws. So this has become known, I, I suppose, as the lost cause myth. Um, and this this happens because in the wake of the war, at the end of the war, um, there's a project called Reconstruction, which is basically about dismantling the, um, the system of slavery. So it's recognising that ending slavery isn't enough. Centuries of oppression and violence have to be, uh, I suppose, reconciled. You know, you can't just... Ex- expect african-american former enslaved people to to kind of participate in the economy and society as if slavery never happened there is huge backlash against reconstruction and after lincoln's death after lincoln's assassination reconstruction is abandoned completely dismantled and we see the enforcement of jim crow laws so basically we see the re-emergence of slavery in in anything but name so that's when we see the emergence of kind of mass incarceration and of segregation, especially in the South. 
So there is now a kind of historical argument that, in fact, the cons- the Confederacy almost won the war because Reconstruction was abandoned and because of the the establishment of Jim Crow and segregation. Yeah, so that's that's basically saying that this war, which killed, at the best estimates, 750,000 people, didn't achieve its its principal end, which was the abolition of slavery, because slavery continued in all but name. I think so. I, you know, I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. Of course, there's no there's no official ownership of enslaved people, but as we're seeing today, that the legacy of slavery is never really dealt with. It's it's buried, and the oppression of African American people of Black Americans continued. Um, and I think that's where we get to this issue of statues, because as as part of this effort to re- rebrand the Southern cause as not about slavery, but about freedom and, and states' rights, most Confederate statues, most of the statues that we're talking about are erected post-1900. So well, you know, f- four decades plus after the war is over, just as Jim Crow laws are being implemented. So they're actually, like, the statues themselves are pretty crappy. They're, like, mass-produced. A lot of them are are kind of really made out of, like, soft, crappy metal and and aren't particularly solid. But they're everywhere, particularly in the South. Um, They're, you know, in front of all kinds of state houses and, and that kind of thing. And they are there. They are placed there specifically to remind black people of their place that while the confederacy in the south might have lost the war and you know slavery is abolished in name in practice those hierarchies and that violence and that oppression continues virtually unchanged so these statues are monuments to white supremacy i think yeah and i think that that's a really there's a really interesting comparison to be made between those statues and the statue of edward colston and similar victorian statues in the uk so the colston statue was put up in the late 19th century so it was well after it was well after after colston's death and like you say, you know, this is part of a political project. And Col- the Colston statue, that was part of one of these political rewritings of the legacy of empire that I mentioned before. So whereas you're talking about statues in the southern states of the USA that were put there to remind black people that they were second-class citizens or, you know, really not citizens at all, the Colston statue was put up as a as sort of an exercise in imperial whitewashing because it was supposedly meant to celebrate his philanthropic achievements. Well, yeah, I think we see similarities in the US as well, where, you know, you have the president of the United States saying that General Robert E. Lee was a, a great general. You know, there's this kind of whitewashing of, of that history, um, you know, in in the truest sense of the word, I suppose. Um you know, so there's an effort as well in the United States, which is very much connected to this, to rename um, military installations that are also named after Confederate generals. So, so places like Fort Hood and Fort Bragg. And you have the president saying, you know, how dare you try and touch these military installations because they're a testament to our great country and our history of winning. So, so this kind of rewriting of history goes as far as to say that actually the South didn't lose the war. The great generals of the Confederacy are the winners. That's... Okay. Okay. And that's, you know, and it's, it's really, that touches on one of the things that as a, as a historian, I find very frustrating about this whole confected debate is that it's kind of, I've seen it tempting people into a really absurd relativism. Like, so we have, you know, totally bad faith rewritings of history on the one hand, and then we have people who are sort of taking that and then saying, oh, well, this doesn't matter because all history is political, you professional historians, you rewrite history all the time. Of course we do, but we do that so because we just said so in mind of our training and in light of the evidence and in full consciousness of what we're doing. Yeah, and look, I think on that note as well, it's worth it's worth reiterating that this isn't this so-called debate or whatever you want to call it isn't new in the United States, just like it isn't in Britain. You know, it has a long history and you know I'm, I was reminded when you were talking about denazification and and why they aren't memorials to Hitler in in Germany of I guess uh, Trump's predecessor in in Ronald Reagan because Reagan actually he visited West Germany in 1985 and while he was there he visited the the Bitburg War Cemetery which contains the graves of Nazi stormtroopers you know so in 1985 a few decades ago we had a president of the United States visiting 
SS graves, you know, despite the fact that he was urged loudly and publicly, particularly, of course, by Jewish leaders in the United States, not to go. And and he still went, um, which I think just shows, you know, how how unable we have been to deal with this legacy of Nazism in the United States and also white supremacy. So Reagan in 1985 also managed to to both sides the issue by by visiting Bergen-Belsen, which is a concentration camp, during that same trip. Yeah, I I remember I remember learning about the what's what is called the Bitburg controversy back in undergrad so you know probably a bit more than 10 years ago and I I remember at the time thinking that was absolutely extraordinary and I really didn't you know it was it's interesting to think about that in terms of you know I thought of it as something that had to be an anomaly for an American president to both sides the holocaust yet here we are yeah here we are this has a long history um and and it I've, I've said this before, you know, that, that Trump is the heir to that legacy is a kind of logical conclusion to it. Uh, but what he does, I suppose, is kind of say it all louder. You know, Reagan was quieter about what he was doing, whereas Trump, you know, may, maybe though it's not that different to, to Trump calling Robert E. Lee a great general or, you know, the white supremacist so-called protesters who were protecting the statue of that so-called great general Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia, a couple of years ago, where where white supremacists murdered Heather Heyer. Um, you know, Trump called them very fine people. I, I guess, you know, the question has to be asked, that is, is that any different? Yeah, and I think the, the while we're talking about US presidents visiting SS graves, it's time for that other um, question that has dogged us on this podcast. Is America, is Trump's America fascist? Emma and I talked about this on the podcast in an early episode about nine months ago, and it's something that I I have thought of a lot in the months since, and it's still something that in my mind, an argument that I turn over in my mind, and I find, often I find myself that I'm disagreeing with myself because I'm still not quite sure. So I'm kind of keen for Emma to shed a bit of light on that. But one reason why I've been thinking about this again in the last few weeks, because of an essay by the excellent historian Samuel Moyne in the New York Review of Books, in which he argues that he argues against the the principle of comparing Hitler to Trump or comparing Nazism to Trumpism. And I've been thinking about one key point that he makes in that, which is that this comparison with the of this comparison of contemporary america with the fascist past it's something that can be and has been used to exonerate liberals from their complicity with trump or their complicity in bringing trump about and one thing this made me think of em is whether when we we talked about this this issue 9 months ago whether we didn't really take into account how much this might be this comparison with fascism might be a way of obscuring Trump's links with capital and big business because I've certainly seen that as something that's been coming to the fore you know through for instance the absolutely absurd example of Trump endorsing the use of hydroxychloroquine as a as a coronavirus treatment while he owns shares in a company that produces the drug yeah that's right and I, I think you know that there is certainly a lot in that argument that, you know, comparing Trump to a fascist or comparing Trump to Nazis obscures that relationship between basically capital capital and, and big business that is endemic throughout kind of, the, I guess, the elite of American society, which includes, you know, Democrats. And and I think Moyne is right to kind of point out that it, that making that comparison with fascism allows people to, to think, to reassure themselves that, you know, Trump is a literal Nazi, you know, in order to be implicated in this, you have to be a literal Nazi, which kind of ignores the systemic factors, that kind of um, meshing, I guess, of, of billionaires with politics that is partly responsible for the rise of Trump, that kind of lets all that off the hook. Um, but I suppose, you know, having said that, I, th- I still think the comparison is, is worth exploring. I, I think so too, and when you said that, it brings to mind the fact that I think when people do, when people do that comparison badly, it's part, it, another reason why it is a bad comparison is because they rely on kind of a cartoon 
received version of what Nazism was as this, you know, kind of gross, absurd imposition on German society rather than something that actually did grow out of grow out of German politics and German society. It wasn't Hitler didn't, you know, Hitler didn't suddenly arrive at the Reichstag and declare himself declare himself Führer and start opening up concentration camps. Um, exactly. And I think, you know, that's that's partly what we're seeing in the United States. It's a it's an unwillingness on the behalf of, of particularly white people, of course, to examine their own role in, you know, if not supporting this fascist a fascist regime in I guess not opposing and enabling it in that way and and in and doing so being a participant. And I think there's also, you know, there's there's good political reason to at least explore that comparison. I think that's a really good way of putting it, Em, because it is about it is about being vigilant for signs of what is fascism or what can turn into fascism in the future. So I I guess my question is for you, Emma, is in the in the nine months since we last spoke about this, has anything changed in your understanding or your perception of the Trump presidency and what it, what it is and what it means? I, to be honest, I don't. I don't really think so. I think I've probably become a bit um, f- firmer in my convictions. You know, when you see the president kind of brandishing a Bible as as tear gas is dispersing, and then saying he's going to call in the military against his own citizens you know i i guess i recognize fully that 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 kind of language has a long history in the united states the u.s government has a long history of using the national guard against its own citizens for example um so there is that history but i also think we are looking at a potentially catastrophic time which you know i thought nine months ago um i i think you know today i'm still i'm still pretty struck by the unwillingness of liberal commentators in particular and this I think connects to what you were saying about Samuel Moyne's article it's this unwillingness to really see what is happening and and you can see that playing out when you know in in all of this while massive voter suppression is happening and elections are looming you know they're still publishing explainers about why Trump can't legally cancel the election like haha we've got you the constitution says that you can't do that you know there's still this inability to consider the fact that Trump doesn't care about the constitution like he doesn't care about norms and he is totally willing to destroy them he has already done that but I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks at least is some people who have been kind of in that camp about you know American institutions are strong and will save us you've seen some of them kind of realize in real time what is happening yeah and and that is extraordinary or at, at the very least, I guess, kind of opening up their platforms to more critical voices. I mean, I'm thinking about CNN, I think it was, that had the radical Harvard professor Cornell West talking about white supremacy in, in a broadcast that was, very, that was very widely viewed. It was, it was, you know, there were kind of, I suppose there are actually two ways of looking at it. There's looking at, you know, what the opportunity was for someone like Cornell West, who is an extraordinary intellectual and extraordinary activist, to be able to speak to so many more people than he ever would have otherwise been able to reach, but also looking at the kind of white-faced shock of a liberal news presenter suddenly having to be confronted with these very radical ideas. That's right. That, that clip is extraordinary. And, and it's so interesting to see how much things have changed because West has, he has been on CNN before, like he has been on major networks, but he's usually brought in as the kind of radical voice. And, you know, the white presenters who are interviewing him, you can see their eyebrows kind of disappearing into their hairlines as they hear what he's saying. And, and everybody's kind of, I guess, maybe sniggering is unfair, but just being like, oh, these ideas are so radical. Like this guy has got no hope of ever seeing this kind of change. But there's been this massive shift where all of a sudden it seems at least like these, you know, white liberal journalists are, are really listening and really taking those ideas seriously. And that's that's a big shift. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I mean, I think we probably risk being a bit too optimistic about that sort of step change for white liberal journalists, because I think, you know, we've been shown too many times how quickly they'll revert to form after these very tokenistic openings up of a, of a platform. But... I want to be I want to be hopeful that we are seeing a really a really radical change in the way that the media the media allows and 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 helps to helps to actually give radical voices a stage. 
So maybe one thing that we are seeing that is changing that we should be cautiously optimistic about is in, you know, sort of the liberal media. What about Trump? Do you think that these protests, how, how do you think Trump will ultimately, ultimately react to the protests? Well, you know, I suppose not well. And I think if we go back to that kind of question of liberal media, you know, that's significant when it comes to the to the viewership of that of that liberal media. But that's not, you know, Trump hate watches it, I suppose. But none of his rusted on supporter base is, is taking that seriously. So as much as that might mean a sort of step change in, in broader public discussion, I don't think it's going to change um, Donald Trump's mind or, or Trump the mind of Trump supporters. Um, and I guess that's where, as much as Chloe, like I really want to be optimistic too. You know, I'm seeing that those that changes in narrative, the changes in narrative happen kind of before my eyes. That change, I suppose, that change in narrative. If we go, you know, if we put our historian hat on, that happened in in the last biggest, I guess, the the second biggest wave of protest to, to hit the US in this century, and that is in that crucial year of 1968. And that narrative change, that enormous civil rights movement, led to this, the adoption of the Civil Rights Act in 1968. So that all of that protest, the, all of that agitation, um, and all of that kind of changing of minds leads to concrete legislative action it's total it's inadequate of course you know if it if it was adequate we wouldn't be seeing the kind of protest we're seeing now but there was a change i don't think that's going to happen this time around because trump is in the white house and you know um the republican party is completely behind him and they control the senate so we're not going to see i don't think that kind of political change um Trump's not the slightest bit interested in it. He's talking about calling in the military. He's doubling doubling down on you know his narrative about the South and you know white supremacist monuments. So I think you know there's potential for Trump to clamp down because there's only really two I guess two possible outcomes that I can see at this stage at least. Of course things change a lot. You know the outcome is that Trump leaves the White House, um, which you know, I can't imagine him doing willingly or more suppression, you know, more of this creeping, possibly even overt fascism in the form of massive violent suppression and also electoral fraud. Um, and again, to go back to 1968 and, and the election of Richard Nixon, potentially a huge white backlash. Okay. Sorry, the... I've just undone all of your optimism, Chloe. Oh, Look, that's all right. I, I mean, I, I feel like I was fooling myself with optimism anyway, but I'm going to try to come back to that theme to round out the episode. Emma, you talked earlier about the about some of the more positive moves and the positive concessions to the Black Lives Matters protests. So, for instance, moves to defund or completely restructure police police departments. These all seem to me to be very much actions that are in states' hands. So... My question is, can there be significant progress for racial justice through the states and without the federal government, i.e. is it possible to ignore Trump? Um, I, I think, no, it's never possible to ignore Trump, but it is possible for states to make significant um, progress. So one of the things people might have noticed when, when watching all of these um protests unfold across the United States is that we're dealing with a a multitude of police forces. So you have, you know, the NYPD in New York, you have the Minneapolis police force. So policing is, is actually really diffused and controlled sometimes on a County basis. So there's certainly possible, there's the possibility of dismantling police forces on a, even on a County basis, on a, on a state basis. And I suppose creating um, almost islands, I suppose, of progress when it comes to racial justice in criminal justice systems, which are, again are are state based but that of course connects back to our earlier discussion of of the civil war and the role of states rights and what I think is possible that we'll see which goes back to my comment about no you can't ignore Trump is that when states attempt to do this kind of work when they attempt to dismantle police forces Trump has said that he is going to step in now that can mean things like um, you know, denying states access to uh, personal protective equipment or 
coronavirus tests or um, masks, which Trump has already been doing, you know, and he's been very open about the fact that he is treating some states better than others purely on the basis of how nice a governor is to him, you know, how much groveling they do. So there would be implications that way. And uh, there's also the case that if states are making legislative changes to their policing, to their criminal justice system, that is open to um, contestation in the courts. And what happens then is those legal contests move through courts, which Trump has been very busily filling with his own supporters. He's appointed hundreds of judges. And as those cases move up through the courts, they get to the Supreme Court, which, um, you know, again, Trump has been very busy appointing Supreme Court justices. So I guess my answer to your question, Chloe, is both yes and no. It is certainly possible to make progress in those, even in those individual murder cases um, and in broader criminal justice systems on a state-by-state basis. But Trump, you know, as much as he says Robert E. Lee was a great general and the Civil War was about states' rights, when it comes to things like this, he's not the slightest bit interested in states' rights. He will go full federal control. It's, this is, uh, it's quite funny and I'm going to get, you know, slightly personal, which, you know, is unusual on this podcast. Um, but when you say that, it actually, it brings to mind a conversation that I remember we had either on the day of or very close to Trump's inauguration. I'm not sure if you'll remember it in, but I was, I was in Berlin at the time. And I remember this was around the time of Trump's inauguration. I was getting really anxious about it. And I remember walking through the Deutsches Storisches Museum in Berlin, where, you know, you are told in very, in very strong and kind of, I guess, unblinking terms about how Germany came to, you know, to destruction and to becoming this world power that had this enormously dark influence on the world in the 20th century. And I remember messaging you from that museum and asking you, what happens next? What is Trump? Is he a fascist? Do Amer- can American institutions save us? And I remember you being very pessimistic about that, which was not great for me as I was walking around, you know, the German Historical Museum. So I was in a bit of a state. So I'm going to ask you that question again. Can American institutions save us? It is a big question. And and I think, yeah, I, I have long felt that the answer to that question, as you know, as you've just reminded me about that conversation, I've long felt the answer to that question is no. Um, but... I'm, I guess I, I hold on to a little bit of optimism because I haven't been proven right yet, um, if that makes sense. You know, the inauguration was a long time ago now. Um, you know, it feels like a lifetime ago. And we haven't seen those institutions collapse, but we have seen them continue to fail to do their jobs. So they exist, but they are failing um, and have long failed to protect particularly black lives in the United States. And I think we've seen the further erosion of, I suppose, the what integrity those institutions did have. Um, so we've seen Congress be effectively hamstrung. You know, they, they haven't really done anything um, to respond to these protests apart from um, engage in, you know, cheap symbolic gestures, I think. Um, we have seen police forces across the country basically just running wild, you know, I suppose with some exceptions. But we've seen the NYPD, um, for example, um, driving their cars into protesters and, and engaging in just horrific violence, which of course they have been doing for a long time. I think what these protests have done, particularly for white people, is just highlight how bad this situation is. And they are doing this almost unchecked. You know, I I think as much as I just said, it's possible to make progress at the state by state level. Many states are, are completely unwilling to take on police forces, which are incredibly militarized, you know, to the point where the NYPD has a budget of six billion US dollars. Like this is the kind of level of militarization that we are talking about. And I think when you have that deep institutional violence, the momentum is always towards more violence. When you have police officers armed to the the teeth like that and trained to see their fellow citizens as enemies, you know, they will use what is at their disposal. That's why we see in DC in particular where where Trump has more powers and has called out, I guess, more action against protesters. We see counterinsurgency 
techniques developed by the American military being used against American citizens. And that, to me, is pretty terrifying. So, you know, I don't I don't even know if I've answered your, your question, Chloe, but I don't have a lot of faith in those institutions. As much as we've seen symbolic gestures of, you know, particular generals or whatever saying that they, they their oath is to the Constitution and they won't obey illegal orders by the president, I don't have a lot of faith in that, I, I suppose, um, continuing all the way down the ranks when those institutions, when the military and police forces across the country are deeply embedded in um, white supremacist politics. I suppose that there is one institution that we haven't really gone into great detail about today, and that's, but that's absolutely one that we need to keep on our radar as we watch this situation unfold and we watch watch it develop and that is of course the American presidential election which is something that is that has always been compromised um we could do a whole episode on the electoral college it's something that as you've indicated is becoming more fraught as Trump shows demonstrates his determination to mess with the that democratic process um but I think that that's something that we really do need to keep a close watch on it's only a few months away and it could be decisive. Yeah, I think it absolutely could be. And it, and it is, it's kind of wild for me to say it, but I feel like I'm saying it more and more that we cannot assume that this is going to go ahead as normal. You know, it's becoming more common, I think, to see conversations about whether Trump is going to respect the result of the election as compromised as it is. And I think that is a potential reality that we have to confront as difficult as it is to to imagine you know the in air quotes greatest democracy in the world not following a democratic process flawed as it is i think that is becoming increasingly possible so on that typically cheerful note we're going to leave it there for this this extra episode of belly again bye We'll be back next week to talk about another cheerful subject, or at least one that the 90s had a lot of a lot of hope and optimism for, and that's the environment. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.